I'm back in plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by Zeb Yamrozik. Dr. Yamrozik is a practicing physician. He is a doctorate in ID ethics, which uh, you wouldn't think it turned out to be the most useful thing, huh, to have a, a doctorate in that discipline. Uh, he is a frequent guest of this show, friend of the show, and a beloved guest. I mean, I think a lot of people watch you on this, and really, um, your framework and your perspective has really resonated with a lot of people. Thank you so much for coming back on. Thanks, Renai. It's great to be here again. I wish we didn't have to keep meeting under these circumstances, but uh, <laughs> it appears we do. Um, there's a lot of big picture questions we're going to talk about. Let's give leader, uh, listeners a little bit of a roadmap. We're going to try to talk about censorship, misinformation, authoritarian public health, like what's going on right now in China, science in times of crisis, some of the rules in Australia. Um, but I thought a few specific examples might get the ball rolling nicely. Um, you follow the very interesting story of, uh, of, of, uh, of New York City and Kyrie Irving. This is apparently a basketball player. I don't know if you saw this. Um, my understanding of the situation is that this is a gentleman who uh, is, uh, you know, 20-something-year-old, healthy, NBA basketball player. Uh, some people tell me, but I haven't been able to confirm that he's had and recovered from COVID-19. But whether that is or is not true, he's decided he didn't want to be vaccinated. So he joins that that fraction of people who, who go that way. Um, interestingly, New York City had a mandate, which is that if your primary place of employment is New York City, you can't work in New York City unless you have been vaccinated. But other cities don't have that mandate, and he's an NBA player. So he's allowed to go to other cities and play NBA basketball. But he can't play NBA basketball in his own city of New York City. But interestingly, they recently lifted their vaccine passport rules and their mask mandates so he can attend the very game he's not allowed to play in. And he can stand on the front row two feet away from the court and he can breathe all over it with no mask. But he can't step on that court and shoot the basketball. And he actually his team got fined when he went in the locker room. And uh, the, I guess the, the added irony to the situation is this created such a brouhaha. Uh, NBA basketball players were critical of the mayor who sets this policy that they've created a, uh, a carve-out for, I think, professional sports and performance artists that they don't have to have the vaccine mandate, but that carve-out doesn't exist for other people. And I guess to some degree it's a small example of just absolutely contradictory policy but to a large extent, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. And I'm curious what you think. You know, there, there, we had the mask mandate in restaurants, which meant from the door to the table, but not when you're eating. We still have, I see a lot of play, places. I just saw the, an Amazon guy delivering packages. He has to wear a mask. I, I assume that that's sort of his corporate policy. Um, a lot of restaurants, the servers are wearing masks, but not the, uh, not the patrons. Uh, of course, if they lift all the mandates, then of course, then, you know, quick, people quickly throw away the mask. tells you how much they enjoyed wearing it. Um, but I'm curious, do you think these kinds of contradictions, are they just something we focus on? Or are they actually a reason why people come to get angry and distrustful of public health? Yeah, well, I, I think I've been thinking about these absurd rules quite a bit, actually. And one of the things I find scary about them is that... Um, it's kind of like when people join the army and the army says you must follow these rules even if they make no sense <laughs> and it's 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 partly about i think getting people into a kind of discipline of following rules unthinkingly right um and it's almost as if the people who want to defend kind of the dystopia of rules that we've been living in in general will fiercely defend the ones that make no sense 
Um, meanwhile, the other people, as you say, lose trust in public health because this is the 21st century. Uh, there's there's big data. Uh, there's uh, you know plenty of science available on the internet. Uh, a lot of people aren't stupid and and they can just see that you know wearing a mask as you walk into the restaurant and so on doesn't make sense uh the servers wearing a mask doesn't make sense uh, the evidence on cloth masks shows that they don't work um so kind of a lot of these rules are just so nonsensical uh that yeah one one worry i have is that people internalize this idea that they should just follow the rules even though they make no sense and that's not what we want in a um in a free thinking democracy um and then I guess the other thing about it is, uh, yeah, when did we work out that vaccines don't really block transmission? Well, in May 2021, when there was yeah. that outbreak in the Singapore airport, vaccinated staff, very good rule following people, fully vaccinated. There was an outbreak among those staff. It became clear that, you know, there was a very significant um, post-vaccination infection rate that could be transmitted. And once we knew that, I don't think mandates could possibly be justified. Uh, and I, I personally think they've been a net harm to society in all kinds of ways. I've worked on a paper on that with some other co-authors. And then there's then there's a kind of problem with um, kind of class, you know, that we've set up this set of rules that there are classes of people, like you say, the delivery person, mm -hmm. um, the person serving you uh, and so on, who have to wear them and other people don't. Uh, you know, the, the rich people at awards ceremonies don't have to wear them, but the people uh, serving them do. The politicians don't have to wear them, but the, people, the children in school do. Um, and it, it's being enforced on people who have the least ability to kind of defend their own rights. Uh, and, you know, if you believe in equality, equity, fairness, um, you should see that that's, that's unfair and that's a really bad idea. The right to show your face, uh, you know, it's such a fundamental right. I never thought it would be taken away just of the working class people. Um, yeah, and uh, and your point is also well done. And you, I see that, you know, you're co-author on that very lovely uh, article that's out at uh, SSRN. Where is it? SSRN? It's pre-printed. Um, and it's leading to, I see in Toronto, they're actually having a health law policy forum. Do vaccine mandates do more harm than good? And they have Steph Burrell and they have... Um, uh, what's his name? Kevin um, from Columbia. Yes. And um, and others uh, discussing this issue. And to me, that signals two good things. One, the Academy, which has been scared to host any debates, scared and cowardice uh, and embarrassment. Uh, I really think that that's something that, you know, I, maybe it's a point that I, I I'm curious what you think. But I mean, I think that. Uh, there is this thing called cancel culture, whether anyone wants to admit it or not, and it's getting stronger, and it got stronger, happened to coincide with COVID-19. And there's a thing called the academy, which has always been the place where you're able to debate controversial ideas, and we allow people a wide berth. Even if we think what we're saying is wrong and silly and stupid, we allow them to be stupid because every so often of a 100 stupid people, maybe two of them are brilliant, and you just didn't see that. And that's the whole purpose of the freedom. It's not that because you, you just don't know. And a lot of people throughout history, from Barry Marshall, who drank the H. pylori, to Jim Allison, who, you know, came up with uh, T-cell inhibition, have been called lots of names and laughed at when they turned out to be right. So, you know, okay, so that's why we give them a wide berth. Um, at the same time, you know, we've made universities addicted to donor money, addicted to, uh, you know, public-private partnerships and this kind of corporatism. And, uh, and, 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 so, and we put the people in charge of the universities are not the most, you know, often passionate defender of academic freedom. It's the most corporatist, uh, a politician person who works there. And as a result, that when this, when this pandemic happened, naturally a crisis where people, emotions are going to be high, people feel like you're, you know, your bad policy is not just um, a bad idea, it's killing me. 
um, they're going to want to use the tactics of cancel culture to silence debate. And I think largely the university's acquiesced. And, you know, Jay Bhattacharya, um, you know, he, he says Stanford hosted zero debates, zero debates at Stanford University, despite the fact that they have Atlas and Yonides and Bhattacharya and many other people who felt fundamentally different, zero debates on whether or not we should lock down, shut down school closure, all these things. Um, that's astonishing. Um, and so I guess I, 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 I came to this by because I'm heartened that actually Toronto, there's some crack in the crack in the dam. Yeah, well, what, what we did for that paper led by Kevin Bardosh is is not that complicated in a lot of ways. We got a lot of different disciplines, uh, people uh, with, you know, experience in kind of hard science, people with experience in ethics like me, people with social science of health and public health. And we just went through all the ways that, you know, va uh, vaccine mandates and other types of mandates have harmed society. Um, and, you know, one regret I have is that we didn't write that paper sooner. But but initially, when all of us said this might be a bad idea, of course, people said, well, there's no evidence that it's a bad, you know, that it's a bad idea. And that, you know, of course, now the evidence of harms is just accumulating every single day. Um, but yeah, the academy, uh, I think the, the erosion of um, kind of academic freedom and, and courage for that matter um, in the academy is maybe symptomatic of a wider problem in democratic institutions, you know. Uh, democracy doesn't just work because you're able to vote for who the president or prime minister is. You know, democracy requires that you have a whole bunch of really healthy institutions. You know, uh, the academy is one of those institutions, which is about generating new ideas, as you say. But there's also, you know, for example, uh, you know, the US FDA uh, that's responsible for um, independently approving interventions before they can be used on human beings. Uh, there's the Centers for Disease Control that's, you know, responsible for enacting science-based public health. Um, there's the courts, which are responsible for enforcing checks on executive power. Uh, and all of these institutions have shown incredible weakness uh, mm. during during this pandemic uh, in the US, like in other places. Um, so there's a kind of institutional problem. Uh, there's also a problem, of course, of um, you know individual uh, fear and individual courage. And it, it's just the case that um, there's there's not a lot of academics who are uh, you know brave enough to um, stand up from their very safe uh, you know well feathered positions in society and use that the freedom that they have um, to speak up when something's wrong and 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 moreover when less powerful people are being harmed by what's yeah. wrong um, and you know th there's only a few of those people around hopefully there's going to be more and more and I, I think there are more and more people who are now brave enough to to speak but but it's been difficult to do so in lots of ways. Yeah, that's well put. I also have talked to a few people who happen to be early signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration who are professors, and they told me about some of the backlash they received. And uh, so I guess, uh, you know, of course, I didn't sign that document, but uh, just because I, it didn't have exactly what I wanted in it, but I certainly thought it was uh, a dialogue to be had, and I wrote as much at the time, um, that obviously in retrospect, even their most ardent critic has to concede one thing. They were right about schools. You can't, they're 100% right, but they were the ones that were right about schools and the other side wasn't. Um, let's talk about, this is a point you made to me that I think is really apt. Today we have the Verback meeting. Uh, in the United States, we approve drug products and then a couple weeks later, we have the advisory committee to discuss the validity of those approvals. That's the nice, that's the way you do it when you have sort of a totalitarian approach to regulation, not a democratic approach. Um, it's, and, we're, and this is about the fourth dose. Now I see the European CDC is saying something like you can consider a fourth dose in people over 80 or people who are chronic residents of nursing homes. And I say, you know, that's, that's gonna be the group that I would target if I were to target it. The United 
United States went beyond Pfizer's request. Pfizer said 65 and older. They said, you know what? Hey, Pfizer, you're asking me for half a dollar. Let me just give you the full dollar. Let me just give you a few more 20 bucks. Let me give you a little extra money. And they gave him 50 and up. 50 and up all healthy people in this country have an EUA authorization to receive a fourth dose. Um, if you're a 51-year-old healthy person, you got three doses, potentially even an Omicron superinfection, you are eligible to receive. This regulatory authority says it is safe and effective for you to receive. It is, in fact, reasonable for you to receive a fourth dose. Um, this is, it, it, I think, I don't, I mean, we can talk about that. The basis of this is the same thing that we see with masking studies, fourth dose studies, which is a not a large randomized control trial where we randomly sign people. It is an observational study of what happens to people who choose to do this versus people who don't choose to do this, or people who choose to do it soon versus people who choose to do it later. And this is evidence that people, you know, yesterday New England Journal has, or not yesterday, this morning, I think New England Journal has the paper, Israeli experience with fourth dose. And I saw a faculty member at a university in this country said, we know there are no harms. I said, well, you know, there are no, you know that? There are no, you know there are no harms, so there's a benefit? And, and this is the most persuasive, elegant study. Uh, those aren't the words that come to my mind. I wonder if you could talk about observational studies for medical products, for interventions. Um, why have we not accepted them for, you know, 25 years? You know, why have we thought they're inferior evidence? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole range of there's a whole range of reasons, but yeah, a big reason that you know you've pointed out on a few different things here is uh, is confounding factors. You know, in first year epidemiology, uh, you learn about how an observed association between doing thing A and outcome B um, might be due to A causing B, or it might be due to a bias in the way the information was collected or who was selected for the study. Uh, it might, but it also might be due to confounding factors, something that's uh, linked to both A and B. Um, and we're seeing that over and over again in the pandemic. Uh, yeah, so for example, uh, studies of mask mandates, uh, you know, different places that institute mask mandates and places that don't, those places differ by more factors than just do they wear masks? Same as the early observation that uh, in some East Asian countries, rates of COVID were lower. Everyone said it was masks. There might be something different about kind of those places uh, that isn't related to the masks directly. Um, you know, observational data in, in children. We don't have any. We don't have any good data showing that the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks uh, in children. And to do that, we would have to have a large randomized control trial of, you know, probably a hundred thousand children or more. Um, but if you do an observational study, you can easily show that. And the CDC did this and published it in their journal uh, that. Uh, the children who get vaccinated have a lower rate of, say, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. But if you take a closer look at that study, uh, you'll see that, gosh, just like we observed everywhere else, uh, the children who get bad outcomes from COVID are often uh, not only children with comorbidities, but people in, in the US uh, from poor non-white families. And nowhere in that study is it mentioned that uh, at the same time, the children who were getting vaccinated first were the children of rich white families. Uh, you know, and so it's no surprise that it appears that vaccination is associated with a lower risk of severe outcomes because the kids who were getting vaccinated, they were at lower risk of severe outcomes anyway. Um, likewise, the fourth dose study in Israel, um, you know, uh, the people who rushed out and got and got vaccinated first with the fourth dose, they were different people to the ones who didn't. Um, and so it will appear that the vaccine is producing a risk reduction, but it's actually confounded by the fact that these are different people um, going out at that time. And yeah, if a, if a first year epidemiology student presented this to me, um, you know, they would fail, but but, um, but we're, instead we're making policy based on this. 
it's astounding. I mean, I think across all these domains, um, you know, the people who rushed to get the fourth dose uh, in in some of, one of the Israeli preprints I read, they had higher socioeconomic status. They have different sort of racial makeup. They're less likely to be Orthodox or Arab. They're more likely to, uh, you know, they have they are from a different group. Um, they're probably far more likely to engage in other protective behaviors, like sitting in your house all day and keeping the door shut and getting all your food delivery. Um, the kids who are the first to be vaccinated, uh, affluent kids, um, uh, uh, advantaged kids. Uh, what do we are we and you're comparing them to the kids who are who's who there is some vaccine hesitancy. Um, this is not reliable. I mean, you can't conclude it's the product. Um, and then my favorite was. You know, there's so many of these mask studies. They're all flawed, of course. But one I thought was better than the others. It actually tried to, like, match county by county. And it even matched for, like, the rate of spread, the R coefficient, and cases um, in the days preceding having a mandate or not having a mandate. So they tried to get that lined up. And then they could show the trajectory was different. But the point I was trying to make to the author, which who didn't hear what I was trying to say, was that... Um, we know these counties are different. Proof that they're different is that at the same threshold of cases on the dashboard, one is saying we're going to have a mask man, the other is saying, you know what, let's let it ride a little bit longer. We're going to enjoy ourselves, you know? Okay, they're different places. And so probably the people in those places are different. And probably on balance, people in the county that's less likely to deploy the mandate are also less likely to seek testing in the first place. So what you're matching, you're matching this R coefficient, but it's an observed R with, I don't know, 62% of people seeking testing versus 52% of people seeking testing. And you're actually matching a more brisk trajectory against your trajectory. And actually what happens in the, in the days since, don't be surprised that the county that doesn't want to do anything, that that was an underestimate of the real trajectory and it's going to blow through the roof. Anyway, so I tried to, t I tried to explain this to the person, but they didn't see it. I was like, you know, I give up. It's really sad. I mean, it's sad that, I don't know, in 2022, it feels like we're using kind of science that was soundly debunked in 1992. Uh, you know, we're we're back. It, we're back in the 70s in terms of the quality of medical evidence, and the and not for small decisions for the most consequential decisions. You know, mass campaigns of millions of people either engaging in behavior change that is incredibly divisive and uh, a medical intervention that's being deployed in in such widespread fashion based on the lowest quality evidence. Yeah. Um, and I just want to make a link there between yes. the kind of uh, the problem of ethics and the problem of evidence, like evidence-based public health. Um, you know, uh, people have said, uh, once we institute these kind of measures, it would be it would be unethical to study them. You know, we're so sure that these measures must do something, it would be unethical to study them. Well, that's a mistake. Um, and, you know, it's a mistake that's made in sort of clinical medicine, too. Um, but uh, so it's actually not only the case that it would be unethical to study these interventions it's that there's an ethical obligation to study these interventions why because as you say these are norm enormously consequential many people are getting affected by them uh there are potential harms of you know each of these interventions uh in many cases we're mandating them so we're taking away people's freedom to refuse these interventions so there's an extra kind of ethical reason why you would want to see that the benefits of these interventions outweigh the harms and so there's never been a stronger case, ethically speaking, for randomized control trials than this pandemic. And they should and they should have started, you know, from day zero. Um, and I, I really like just hold on one second. Sure. Yeah. So I so I really like uh, that proposal that you made that um, next time we have a public health emergency from an infectious disease epidemic, uh, you know, the clock starts then and 
you can institute any intervention you like within reason um, and you have three months to show that the benefits of that intervention outweigh the harms in a randomized control trial design whether individually randomized or cluster randomized and if at the end of that three months you can't show that the benefits of harm uh, benefits outweigh the harms of that intervention you have to stop doing that intervention or it merely becomes recommended rather than mandated um, and if we had have done that we would have stopped doing a whole range of things back in 2020 that weren't helping um, and yeah, some people might think that three months isn't long enough, but that's not true. You know, if it's, a, if it's a genuine emergency, you can get data really quickly. Pfizer got their data within 46 days, you know, mm. showing separation of curves and stopping the study. So you don't even need three months if it's a real emergency. That's a terrific point. And, you know, I, I like it because it's sort of the accelerated approval idea brought to non-pharmacological interventions, which is you get to try it, but you have a post-marketing commitment which is generate evidence or it's going to be rescinded. But I suspect that just like the accelerated approval, it'll suffer from the same problems, which is that the people won't have the courage to pull the plug on it. So I do think, I mean, maybe the solution is these needs to be sort of written into constitutions or a, a sort of constitution of health crisis, which I think we desperately need. Because, and this will talk about the next issue, the authoritarian issue. I mean, what democratic free societies were willing to do was unprecedented. Uh, unprecedented suppression of the ability to congregate, to meet, to uh, assemble, to, to, to speak even, you know. Um, these, are th these are deep threats to democracy, and I don't think it has been appreciated enough because people feel like they were done for the right reason. Um, uh, at least some people feel that way. But I think increasingly, I think people are waking up because like all things, when the heat of the moment is over, you, you see it more clearly. Um, and that might be the way in which to codify some of these things. But let's talk for a minute about authoritarian public health. I've been reading horrific stories from Shanghai, which is under lockdown. And the stories say something like, um, you know, people's babies are being ripped from their arms because the parents are positive or the baby's positive or the child is positive kids like like two-year-old kids like infants um and they're taken to the quarantine centers and people aren't allowed to go out and um uh, you have to get your food delivered but there's food scarcity and so people are rationing their food in their homes uh all in pursuit of zero covid uh which i i, I mean i feel like even the chinese government should realize is not able even that they cannot sustain um but they don't seem to realize it um you know, of course, they at baseline, not exactly a place of democracy, but uh, it's gotten worse. I guess that's the point. It's gotten worse, and I don't think they're going to win. They're just going to—they're going to get swept up in the next wave. Um, so, what are your thoughts on what's going on there, and what are the lessons for the Western world? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's a, we're doing a big global social experiment. Um, is authoritarian public health the best way of handling a, an infectious disease emergency? Um, and I think in early 2020, uh, a lot of people saw what authoritarianism could do in China, and they were very impressed by that. And some democracies took on these authoritarian approaches, which I personally think was a mistake. Um, but now, two years later, you know, the democracies are all coming out of things, you know, more or less okay. And the kind of more democratic places with better functioning institutions, like in Scandinavia, uh, they're coming out best. Um, but authoritarian states, people who've tried to do authoritarian public health, uh, have largely failed. And we're clearly seeing harms um, that are massively outweighing any benefits. Uh, so, yeah, um, who tried this? Well, Vietnam, they abandoned this, they abandoned mm -hmm. this approach. Uh, Hong Kong, they just recorded the highest um, case fatality uh, risk for COVID-19, enormous deaths uh, among, among older uh, citizens. 
Um, China, as you mentioned, uh, Shanghai, I don't know how many millions of people are under house arrest right now for a prolonged period uh, mm -hmm. when you know only a minority of those are infected and only a minority of the infected people have symptoms. Um, and you know, even in you know Australia, Canada, the US, in places we've tried authoritarian public health and it doesn't really work. And it's worth pointing out two things. Uh, first, uh, we already tried. We already had an experiment on this during the AIDS pandemic, uh, where we tried um, you know shaming people, keeping them under surveillance, uh, uh, ostracizing them from for society for being HIV positive. And then everyone in public health realized this isn't the way to handle an infectious disease. You know, uh, people will do things that increase the spread of infection. Um, people will feel uh, unfairly vilified and so on. Um, and everyone agreed, you know, people wrote books on the on the idea that we had to balance human rights, mm. freedoms and uh, and public health um, in the context of HIV. And I think that applies broadly to other infectious diseases, including respiratory pathogens. And the second thing is, as you mentioned, the link between zero COVID and authoritarianism mm -hmm. um, and i think the basic problem here um, is that if you're aiming for elimination if you're aiming for zero then what you're willing to tolerate in terms of harms um, restrictions on freedoms and so on uh, will escalate very rapidly that applies to any public health problem um, you know an analogy would be if you're aiming for zero road accident deaths uh, well, then you might put in the craziest road rules possible to kind of avoid anyone ever having an accident, but then the road system would stop working. Um, same thing in public health, in, in infectious diseases, rather. If you're aiming for zero of any infectious disease, uh, there's a risk that you're going to um, undermine human rights in a big way to try and get to zero. I think that's well said. I also think it's such a delusion. I mean, it's like the greatest human delusion I've ever seen. I saw a couple of schools in California have reinstituted mask mandates because they've outbreaks of gastroenteritis. I was like, gastroenteritis? What do you got the mask mandate? I was like, Dude, I gotta get back to the drawing board and teach you how these things spread. But all right, fine. All right, you want to do it? For I was like, okay, you got the gastro now. Um, you know, why is the gastro going around? Well, I hate to break it to them, but um, gastro has been going around kids for a long time. And you know what? going around kids for a long time since. And I don't think you can keep it at bay. I mean, uh, you know, and, and what will it take to keep it? I think they've like entered this delusion. I hear people say, you know, I haven't had a cold in two years. I was like, yeah, you know, you, you're not going to be able to sustain it. And, you know, you're going to get, you're gonna, I, you know, you'll have a good couple years, but then you're going to get like five colds in like four months. And you're going to be, one of them is just going to blow you away. You're going to be in bed all day, you know. Um, that's just life. It's life. That's, that's, that's what these things do. They have um, uh, they're very highly evolutionary selected pathogens that thrive uh, on normal human behavior. That's why they exist. You will not be able to suppress the normal human behavior. You can try with extreme draconian measures. You will sacrifice all the things we value. You will show that you're an unprincipled person. You, you're, you give up your principles. You give up who you are. Uh, all the enlightenment values, you'll throw those away. And then you will still, I think, get it at the end. And I think China is not out of the woods. I don't know. You know, I guess as critical as one can be of their government, the people who do run China include many smart people. I mean, they have done a lot of things. They can, they, they've been able to figure out how to make trains go between cities in a fast way. In the United States, we don't know how to do that. You know, we just drive on pothole roads and fly, you know, fly in horrible airplanes. You know, we just put more seats in the plane. That's our solution. But, you know, they figured out some things. Um, but I don't understand. I really don't understand why they think they can, they can do this. They will be swept. It's only a matter of time. 
Yeah, so that's that's right. And um, it is hubris to think that we can suppress infectious infectious diseases forever. Uh, it was hubris to think that we could eliminate or eradicate a respiratory virus by you know early 2020 when it was already established in you know huge populations in the world, uh, populations that have never eliminated measles, for example, despite having a near perfect vaccine. Um, but just to go back to your gastroenteritis yeah. point, yeah, I think that's an interesting one. So like you, I'm looking forward to seeing the randomized control trial data that masks prevent gastroenteritis. But <laughs> I, I yeah. think we're going to be waiting. We're going to be waiting a long time for that. Um, but there's, there's kind of two other reasons why there's so much gastroenteritis going around. The first one is that um, merely using hand sanitizer which people have adopted as a normal practice, isn't as effective as washing your hands. Correct, uh, yes. And, and, and it's been shown here in Australia that use of hand sanitizer um, probably played a role in outbreaks of gastroenteritis mm -hmm. instead of people washing their hands, which would have been more effective. The second reason is that we're seeing rebound epidemics. Uh, you know, I've talked about this in the context of other respiratory viruses that have been suppressed during the pandemic. Um, but if you look through history, um, there's a number of examples where uh, infectious diseases were suppressed for a time and then they just come back, you know, double or triple right. what they were before because there's less immunity in the population. Um, and in the case of schools, you know, you close schools for two years, you keep all the kids separate, you keep society shut down, then you gradually reintroduce people and all of a sudden you have the perfect setup for large epidemics. And um, I'm on hospital service right now in Australia. And sure, we have an epidemic of COVID, but we also have a whole range of rebound epidemics of other viruses. Right. Um, and there's a couple of problems. One uh, is that, yeah, people, like you said, haven't had a virus for two years. So they're like, oh, my God, I feel so sick, but my COVID test is negative. How could it be true? Yeah. Well, that's because other viruses can be horrible, too. Um, and the second problem is that this myopic focus on COVID yeah. alone, I've seen so many cases where, um, you know, the patient and the doctors say, well, we tested for COVID so many times and it's negative. We don't understand how they could be sick, but they haven't tested for other causes of that problem. And they just released a report here in Australia uh, showing that that's led to patient harm. You know, people focused on the idea that the cause must be COVID has led to them ignoring other causes. This is at the individual level. Um, so we're seeing huge distortions in the way people think as a result of this myopic focus on one virus for the last two years. Hmm. One thing I want to say is I think that there are some commenters, even from your country, Australia, that... Um... Uh, were inspired by what China could do and actually recommended it in the early weeks of the pandemic. But I want to talk about one thing. You talked about courage and how that's in decline. I think another thing in decline is principles. I don't think people have principles. Here's what I mean. You co-authored a paper with Stephen, and how do you pronounce his last name? Krajeveld. Yeah. Huh? How do you say it? Krajeveld. Krajeveld. The paper is entitled, Against COVID-19 Vaccination of Healthy Children. It's published in the journal Bioethics, written with you and a colleague. Um, it's open access. He tweets, quote, I'm happy to announce that my third paper of my PhD against COVID vaccine with healthy has just been published. Open access is a thread. And then he kind of explains it. Okay. So he's a trainee working on his PhD. He published his paper. I happen to think the paper is brilliant. I read the paper. I thought it was extremely, extremely well done. And I'm actually very heartened to see a journal like Bioethics is publishing this paper, both because I think there's an immediate need to do it, um, but also I think that there is a historical need to do it, that this is a historical paper and will be read 100 years from now as, uh, as, as, as 
countries and nations and states make uh, unprecedented choices. And I think some of those choices are going to blow up in their face when they institute mandates like in my state, California, um, that will exclude kids and not serve any real purpose because the kid already had Omicron anyway. So we can leave that aside. Okay. He's a PhD student trainee. And I saw, and he wrote a brilliant paper. And, uh, and uh, I saw that some people didn't like what he had to say. Of course, to be expected. Some of the people who didn't like what he had to say said things back to him. Very rarely was it sort of a refutation of the main points or challenging the main points. It was mostly an ad hominem argument against him, against you, against anyone who touched it, against anyone who retweeted it or said it was good. You know, it was just ad hominem, like, like, a, like a Gatling gun of ad hominem sprayed everywhere. Some of the same people who were critical of this guy and you all for writing this paper uh, in a very nasty ways, have also published papers about online bullying of trainees in medicine. <laughs> I was like, the, the, the person who's like documenting the problem of online bullying has become the bully. <laughs> That's what I say. Um, okay, that to me is not principled because they actually have a veneer that they stand against online bullying. But if they really disagree with the person, well, then bullying is okay. And I think that's just a huge problem in our culture now, that if they're on the wrong team or they have the wrong idea, you can engage in the nastiest tactics that you yourself would find despicable. And 50 years ago, we would all agree that whether you agree or disagree, you can't treat people like that. Um, thoughts on this issue? Yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks for your kind words on the paper. Yes, that was Stevens, the lead author, and Rachel Gurari, my co-fellow at Hopkins, is a co-author. Um, and I mean, uh, yeah, so... That paper we, we wrote in early 2021. We submitted it to the bioethics. They, they slow June. rolled you for months. No, no, <laughs> yeah, I, I, thought, I thought you submitted, I, I checked it. It was, like, it was like six months between submission and print or something, or eight months. Yeah, yeah, longer. I think it's longer. close to nine months, yeah. So we submitted it in mid-2021. I mean, imagine how controversial it would have been then if it's this controversial now. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, basically we just wanted to, to, to say some things that shouldn't be too controversial, you know. For example... We shouldn't give vaccines to children until we have high quality evidence that benefits outweigh risks. And we don't have that for COVID-19. If you show me those data that benefits outweigh risks for certain groups of children or whatever, then we can talk, but we just don't have those data. Uh, we wanted to show that um, vaccinating children isn't playing a big role in protecting others for all kinds of reasons. And also that you know, in mid 2021, a lot of people were saying, we need to vaccinate children uh, in order to eliminate this virus or prevent it mutating or whatever. And we wanted to show that that was not true. Um, yeah, not, and not you know, just a word about, uh, you know, and uh, so there's been a lot of attacks on my co-authors, especially Stephen. Um, and I learned from my PhD supervisor that, you know, internet comments, they're like, they're the peanut gallery and you have better things to do than fight with these people online. Um, but you know, the, the, the ad hominem attacks are just hopeless because yeah, Stephen Kreiveld is a brilliant early career scholar who not only had the courage to write this paper, but in 2020, uh, wrote a paper called against a lockdown approach when so many um, you know, tenured academics who must have you know, seen that you know, authoritarian lockdowns maybe would turn out to be a bad thing, but weren't brave enough to say it. He's a PhD student. He wrote a paper about that. Um, his whole PhD is on the moral reasons people might have to get vaccinated to protect others, at least for vaccines that block transmission. Uh, Rachel Gurari, uh, again, brilliant early career scholar, um, work, has worked on uh, vaccine mandates and um, you know, healthcare worker hesitancy or whatever for years. And then 
yeah, a lot of the attacks on on um, on Stephen because he's a, a philosophy PhD said you're not trained in medicine, public health, or whatever. Like, well, okay, maybe those trials should check some of the other authors because yeah, I'm a practicing doctor with a degree in epidemiology and a PhD in public health ethics. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't, that credentialism just doesn't make sense. Just come at the argument. Anyone who wants to refute that paper, I invite them to submit a rebuttal into bioethics. I mean, it was. Shocking to me. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't shocking. I expected that it would be like that, but I, I think it's noteworthy because I think that, I think that some people are not principled, and actually, I think that's a principle that's cross cutting across all these issues. Principled. What does it take to approve a new cancer drug? I want to see randomized control trial. People live longer, live better. All of the ways we've eroded that standard uh, has led companies make a lot of money. Doesn't always make people live better. What should it take to approve a vaccine in kids? You want to see reliable evidence they live longer, live better. That's what you're asking for. That's a robust randomized control trial, 100,000 kids in each arm. Why? Because they do so well naturally. Uh, okay, so you need that kind of power. Um, principled, I wouldn't accept a retrospective observational case control study for some cancer drug. And I wouldn't, expect that, I wouldn't accept that for a fourth dose in a 51-year-old healthy person. You know, that's the principle. Um, and I think a lot of people enter this dialogue and they're not principled because they don't, uh, they, I don't know, they just don't have anything before pre-COVID that they've, you know, like these regulatory issues or public health issues that they've cared a lot about. And I also think that the principle, I think, is that, um, you know, and I'm critical of a lot of papers, but I always try to criticize the, the, the problem with the paper. I mean, and I actually think it's more persuasive, but I saw very little of that in this. And I, I just don't think they can criticize that problem with the paper because they're I don't think there is a problem with the paper. There's, it's a sound argument. In fact, it's surprised it's not a more common argument. I mean, if I were to try to justify why do they think we must pursue it with vigor, I think some people have literally in their brain a distorted risk of what the risk is to a healthy, you know, two through eighteen year old, um, and and then they don't have a good like you know scale like you know uh, uh on some of these maps they have the scale on the bottom and the scale should be like the risk of driving the kid in a car and they don't have that in their brain so you know they're they're, take, they're out of whack naturally we close society we close schools so the risk to kids has to be huge right you know so then you know we're kind of feeding them the the, the sort of the environment where you could let your anxiety grow because if the risk was as as the risk is and you know as the risk actually is then why the hell do you close the school you know it doesn't make you know so they're trying to process their own cognitive dissonance I think people aren't good at thinking about what evidence is necessary to make sure cl medical claims are true. I don't think people know how often without randomized trials you can get burnt. Um, um, and the personal attacks, I will say that, you know, my thought about the personal attacks is they're never happy. You know, he's not, he's a, P, he's a philosophy PhD. He's not a medical doctor. He's not an ID doctor, you know, and I'm a, I'm a doctor, but they say, well, you're not a public health person. Like, oh, I have an MPH from Hopkins. Oh, well, well, you're not an ID at the, but you're not an ID public health. And then I recently had some faculty member screenshot my Google Scholar page and, um, and would clip, clip my face out of it and said, this is the kind of person talking about, um, talking about uh, um, these kinds of issues, somebody who has a, a very weak, weak academic record. And I was like, what the hell? I was like, that's, I was like, that's so harsh, man. I was like, I'm 39, I got two books, I got 300 papers, and that's, I was like, come on, that's pretty good. Come on, don't do that to me. I'll take my knocks, but that's not a fair one. Um, okay, so I'll let you, th thoughts on this issue? Yeah, so maybe, maybe the, the, the last thing first, so, yeah, I mean, um, I, I have a degree in epidemiology, but I didn't, yes. I didn't call myself an epidemiologist in 2020 when a lot of people, you know, dusted off their epidemiology degree. 
yeah. which, they, which they had in non-communicable disease uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and started started calling themselves epidemiologists. No, I didn't do that because that, that's not like, that's not my current work. My current work is in is in uh, yeah, infectious disease ethics. Um, but uh, yeah, all kinds of people can have valid inputs, you know, uh, trained in different things, and, and we should be open to that. Um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. So yeah, one one thing is that. Um, most people agree that standard childhood vaccines are really important. We need to make sure children get vaccinated with safe and effective vaccines uh, for viruses that and, and diseases that put them at risk. Um, and I think some people think that if if we if we express doubt about the COVID vaccine, well, that could reflect badly on the uh, standard vaccines. But mm-hmm. that's not the way I think. I, I think um, you know if you want to if you want people to trust public health advice, well, it needs to be truthful. And we need to be truthful that we just don't have the same level of evidence for um, COVID vaccines in children as compared to um, standard vaccines. And um, uh, Alison Krug pointed out to me the other day that, uh, you know, the, the rotavirus vaccine trial had 70,000 children in it. And to, they needed that in order to show that the benefits outweighed the harms because of rare harms and so on. And uh, we just don't have that for COVID vaccines. Um, and it's absurd to claim that we do. Um, and then, yeah, I think you're right that it, there's there's a lot of people who, if they admit now that we don't need to vaccinate children, you know, say, especially children who've recovered from infection and so on, well, then we would have to admit that almost everything we've done to children for the last two years yes. has been a net harm and a moral catastrophe. Yes. And I, I can see how that's hard to admit. Um, but the answer to that isn't to force vaccinate children now. You're absolutely right. It's that that's they wanted a bit. And then that's why they, um, you know, struggle with it so much. It's the it's the it's that we did this to them waiting for this moment. Um, And I think that's also the motive behind this, like uh, under four, they're like this negative study that failed. And then they give them, by the way, when when, normally you don't allow them to keep giving doses until the non-inferior endpoint is met. You know, you get your two and then the whole trial is bunk. It's over. You throw the whole trial away. You don't say, oh, add a third dose. Okay. I thought that was bad. That was one thing. But then they say, oh, guess what? It, It looks like it's, it looks like it's significant. Let's just, let's just try to get this approval through. And then that didn't work. Um, you know. Fiasco, fiasco. I don't think they. I I think that the problem is that the White House. Uh, well, this is my bias. I think that the White House has taken control of this. They want it. I mean, they want to make like act like they're the ones controlling this. They have the COVID czar. Um, that's not the way America works. America has clear checks and balances, and regulatory agencies are civil servants who have their own standards. But they found a way to like get those people to quit, so that so they can control it. And then I think the problem with controlling it is they're just not good at it. And these are very difficult questions that they don't have the expertise for. Um, let's talk about censorship of misinformation. I think a lot about it. Um, ironically, um, I think that you know, I think there is a crisis of people seeking out terrible sources of information and believing all sorts of wacky things. And I see that all the time. And everyone wants to point the finger at Joe Rogan or like some, you know, somebody, you're the reason why they're doing this. I think the reason is mostly that you have bungled this so badly. Your messaging is so contradictory. I'm talking about public health authority, like the CDC, like people know the studies you're giving them are so flawed. The data, they just admitted that they're like not published wastewater data for many months. They said they admitted that they didn't even have the number of kids dead from COVID correct. They corrected it by like 20%. I was like, you can't even count to like a few hundred. I was like, we're not even talking about complex. And they said it's a coding 
counting error. Yes, we're talking about counting. You can't even tell me how many kids are dead of the, the one thing. That's what we're talking about for two years. You don't even know how many kids are dead. You're off by 20%. I was like, this is rookie. This is like so sloppy. And then you come hard with the vaccine mandate. You fire all these people. And then, oh, wow, everyone's having breakthroughs. And then you have to go look. Then you want to let uh, people who are COVID positive work on the floor in the unit. But you don't want the person who's like doesn't have COVID, but they had it in the past. Or it's crazy. Okay, so that's what erodes confidence. Um, But in response, they want to double down on the policy and just try to censor misinformation. And as far as I can tell, misinformation, a lot, I mean, some of the things that they call misinformation are misinformation, but others are uh, deeply true. <laughs> I was like, that's what I also think. Some are really true and people just don't want to talk about. Thoughts? Yeah, so that's right. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, we're doing, again, we're doing a big social experiment on how do you manage misinformation? And, and we should be honest, there is a problem with misinformation in global society right now, uh, you know, of various kinds. Um, and, you know, one way of handling it is to establish, promote, and develop um, uh, trusted institutions that can provide high quality, true, justified by good quality science information. And then you just say to people, this is, this is what we think is the best reading of the current situation. And then just leave the kind of other kind of people promoting misinformation alone. Um, and I think that's what Scandinavia has effectively done. You know, uh, in Scandinavia, the public health agencies have been very clear about communicating uh, what they know, what the uncertainties around what they know are, um, what the reasons for things being done are, uh, and they don't seem to worry too much about um, about the rest. Then the other approach is uh, trying to censor uh, views you don't agree with. Um, and it's quite clear that United States, for example, is taking that approach and trying to manipulate kind of tech companies to promote more censorship, uh, which, you know, as we've seen through multiple examples, um, has been a, a bit of a disaster. And one of the worries I have is that if you think you can just censor people you don't agree with, I think that kind of undermines uh, the motivation you might have to persuade as a, them. That's yeah. right, as a public health institution to provide high quality um, health communication and to make matters worse uh, you know a lot of the most dangerous misinformation in this pandemic has not come from Joe Rogan it's come from the mouths of public health officials mm. uh, you know um, you know starting with I mean, let's think about what mis- what misinformation has been the science on masks has changed in early 2020 well that that was that was misinformation um, uh, uh, no. masks are masks are as effective as vaccines Ooh, that's, that's misinformation yeah, um, vaccinated people cannot carry the virus uh, that one year ago that was misinformation uh, COVID vaccines are just as effective in real life as they were uh, in the efficacious trial. in the trial that was misinformation mm. um, th- th- we're having a pandemic of the unvaccinated at, at a time where where, where post vaccination infections were becoming dominant that was misinformation myocarditis um, doesn't exist uh, yeah. uh, we've received no reports of myocarditis, CDC director. Uh, three months later, oh, its incidence is one in 3K to 12K. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that's that's been shock- shocking um, censorship of, of the data of myocarditis. And, you know, you and I know that there's there's many cases going unreported. Oh, yeah. Um, and gosh, when, when we find that a, a mass intervention, especially one on young, healthy people, is having some potentially bad side effects, even if the benefits on average outweigh those harms, 
uh, gosh, there's a strong ethical reason to really carefully collect those data and try and work out, you know, how should we best use this intervention? And to, to disclose the harms for informed consent for the people getting the shot. Yeah. Um, how about right. we, we must have booster mandates at universities, uh, you know, uh, um, I'm trying to think of some other good. I mean, you hit so many of the good examples. To me, the original sin was the first example, which was between early March and then early April. We have all this new data that cloth masking works when there was nothing that came in those weeks. There was no, no, the data didn't change. It was the same data. I mean, your your value calculation changed and your political calculation that you need to make people have something, give them something, uh, that changed. And it was either that or hydroxychloroquine. So you choose, you know, you choose, you got to give them something. Give it, they want something. You got to give them something. So you give them hydroxychloroquine or bleach or some light or you give them the cloth mask. Well, you pick, you pick. At least that, you know, they pick the cloth mask. Okay. Um, but, you know, that was a real motivation. Um, I don't think they can do a good job of censoring because I think um, obviously the problems are one, the potential for abuse or misuse. These tech companies have too much power. Two, the tech companies I think are starting to feel the heat. People do recognize they have unprecedented power and they need to be crippled, broken up, brought to their knees. And then they offer this censoring to political parties in favor, sort of as a, a quid pro quo to keep, keep, just don't mess with me. I'll censor whoever you want me to censor, you know, let me make my billions. Um, and I think people don't realize the potential for abuse. And the moment you have anyone who's in office whose goal is, I don't care about democracy. I'm not a principled person. I just want to stay here as long as possible. I mean, that's the first place I would lean is lean on that company to get them to sh extinguish any narrative you don't want there. And uh, they are effectively the public square, um, so you can do that. I think quite effectively. Well, that's right, and you can also you can also lean on um, public health agencies to collect, to collect data and communicate them clearly. Um, you can uh, lean on um, uh, companies to produce high quality data showing <laughs> that benefits outweigh harms before you sign them a check for multiple billions of right. dollars and so on. Um, yeah. But but some absurd things have been coming out of the White House just recently where a journalist asked the White House press secretary, um, you know, if, if this virus infected a 79 year old president uh, compared to a 20 year old, uh, wouldn't the risks be different? And the response was, we don't know that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, she just said, we don't know. <laughs> you don't know that? <laughs> we're, we're two years, we're two years into a pandemic where it's been clear for two years that actually the risks on average to 79 year olds are much higher than the risks to 20 year olds. And of course, you can find a 20 year old who's very sick for other reasons who might actually face incredibly high risks. But the average 20 year old is not facing kind of the same risk as the average 79 year old. Um, and again, that's a form of kind of misinformation that's misrepresenting what we know about the risks of this virus. I saw um, the mayor of New York City who's uh, he's got everything gone. There's no vaccine passports. There's no mask mandates. You know, it's a free for all, except those two to four year olds, as you know, they're the ones causing all the problems. So they have to wear the masks It's mandated. And then I saw a reporter actually ask them, I think from NBC News, you know, what do you say to people who say this is bizarre? We're not doing what, you know, every place on earth is doing Europe or against the WHO or, you know, you're a renegade. What do you say? And the mayor says, well, I tell him that, you know, New York City is not like any other city. I said, what the hell is that your answer? I was like, that would be like in the era of like human sacrifices they're like you know I, I gotta tell him that when you come to this temple and we slaughter that person on the top of the temple the Aztec empire we're like no other empire you know we gotta do it we gotta get the reins so you gotta slaughter that person on the top of the temple this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life uh, oh my goodness I mean but people are saying this is the mayor saying this I thought he was a smart guy too I'm disappointed
Yeah. I think we've had a lot of problems with exceptionalism uh, where people think that they can do something in their place uh, that, because there's something different about it than in other places. You know, we've seen that in multiple countries. Uh, that's a big problem. Uh, and another big problem is the bias that doing something is doing better than nothing. Yes. You know, um, like, like you said earlier, uh, in early 2020, <coughs> people really want something. So we should give it, we should give them something. But just like we know in medicine, sometimes doing something is worse yes. than doing nothing. Um, you know, and it depends what that thing is. And we need to collect data to show uh, which, which, which of them is true. Um, and then the last thing is, yeah, I mean, the moral panic about children um, and the need of some societies to target children during this pandemic is something that A, has caused enormous some some sometimes irreversible harm and b we just we need sociologists and anthropologists and so on to, to help us understand why this happened and to try and prevent it ever happening again um because yeah as, as i'm sure you and many of your listeners agree it's been a you know barely mitigated disaster absolutely I want to talk about one thing that I think is interesting. Um, you know, we have an appointment of a new uh, COVID czar in this country, gentleman Ashish Jha. He's the dean of Brown University Public Health. And uh, I don't want to make this about him because I, I got nothing really against him, although he was on the wrong side of a number of issues. Although, one, you know, for one, the school closure, he did say he, you know, he apologized, I think, to some degree. But he's been on the wrong side of other things. He floated some crazy idea that we should have a vaccine passport for domestic airline travel. And then, you know, of course, that never happened. All because I think he was on a flight and he didn't like the way someone looked in the next seat. I, I mean, I, that's how I feel like it, the story came. But anyway, here's my point about him. Um, we live in a world where uh, there are always supposed to be checks and balances on decision makers in power. And the journalist is supposed to be one key check and balance on people in power. Uh, when Trump was in office, all the journalists hated him, so that was great. I mean, there was a great check and balance, skeptical of everything he said, held him to the, you know, feet to the fire. Um, uh, you know, uh, even at times when he was right, you know, they were a little too skeptical, but, you know, at least they were some, some, there was some sort of uh, pushback. Um, academics at universities also gave appropriate pushback when he, you know, trumpeted hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. Um, when Biden came into office, I think that many of them were more on the same team. You know, Biden and the journalists and academics are on the same team. And this gentleman, Ashish Jha, who I think, um, you know, is probably fine. Um, you know, he, he had a lot of long COVID threads and he got a lot of retweets and he got a lot of visibility on Twitter. And then he did a lot of media and, you know, he's a calming voice. Um, I don't think he actually says anything that interesting, but, you know, it's just kind of the status quo narrative. Um, and then he started to tweet like more and more in support of the administration. Like they had a new policy change and then like within an hour, his new op-ed supporting their policy change comes out in the New York Times. Like so early that he must have known the policy change was coming. How could he have written an op-ed and had it published in a minute? And then he admits that he's actually a recipient of these uh, updates and announcements, which is not the same thing as talking points. He calls it updates and announcements from the White House. And, and he's been getting them and that's how he's you know, supported their cause. But here's my point. Um, if you have this world of social media and you have a phenomenon where people want to say good things that are praiseworthy of the politician so that they can get political jobs, and I think there are many, many people in this line, you have a really skewed view. You don't have independent public health experts giving their input. 
you have people auditioning for a job, but nobody knows that. The public doesn't know that. It's a hu- I think it's such a huge disservice. You look across Twitter. I saw, I saw this another person who I think it may be auditioning for a different job saying what a great decision it is to approve fourth dose in 51 and 50 and above. Um, and how there are, quote, no harms, no harms. I was like, how do you know there are no harms? You know, you know, like you, you ran a trial or something. Um, I, I mean, we, I think it's, we're having people audition for jobs and, and, and being treated as if they're an independent news or uh, independent voice. Thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, going back a bit, anytime someone is um, in executive power and trying to erode institutions and checks and balances in democracy, we should want to critique that. We should want to stop that. And it doesn't matter which side of politics they're on, if they're on your side or the side you don't like. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we should be skeptical of efforts to try and do that. Um, you know, yeah, edge, edge out people who disagree with you at the FDA and so on. Right. Um, and yeah, we also need yeah more, and I've written about this, more transparency about um, who's making the decisions, uh, on what basis are they being made, um, and you know, what's the long-term plan. And in many cases, uh, it's just been coming from these centralized source where, as you say, everyone's reading from the same playbook. And well, in a state of uncertainty in science, it just can't be the case that everyone agrees. Um, and I want to see, you know, a committee of people with a diverse range of views, appropriately qualified, um, and let them kind of make a decision and then review it. Um, mm-hmm. But that kind of uh, check and balance, I guess, uh, which can be done, has been thrown out the window in many places for for kind of two years. You know, people have been living in states of emergency uh, for two years now. You know, I think that's so important. I wonder if you might want to talk about, I guess, one of the last two issues that we want to talk about, science in times of crisis. Um, you know, my belief is that um, uh, that uh, crisis is when you need more evidence, not less. And actually, the uncertainty bounds in crisis are actually bigger than the uncertainty bounds of day-to-day medicine. And so, if anything, we should be running more randomized trials, not fewer, and, and uh, waiting for data rather, rather than just taking bold action. And I think people forgot, like... Um, you know, the, the, the point you make, the universal fallacy that like uh, uh, often the best thing is to do nothing and rather than do something. And probably most of the things we did were actually detrimental um, if you think about all the tens of thousands of things we did. Um, but I wonder what your thoughts are, science in time of crisis. I think we learned a lot about how fragile we are. I think we absolutely learned a lot about that. And, um, you know, I, I, my view, I think is quite similar to yours, which is that if you have a crisis, um, People are going to propose all kinds of interventions and some of them are going to look crazy to some people and some of them don't have very good data to start with and some of them look plausible or whatever and we just need to run anything that looks even you know with an even small probability of being being helpful we need to run high quality trials randomized control trials on each one of those interventions as soon as possible and that way we can pick and choose the ones that are actually working and not causing too much harm um but when uh people kind of want to censor uh, different type, different kind of areas of science or different things that might be run in trials or whatever, then we've got a big problem. The right. other big problem, of course, is, is money. When there's so much money to be made uh, with interventions, um, then, uh, you know, certain types of interventions are going to be run. Data are going to be interpreted in a certain way. Um, decision makers are going to be lobbied by people with money to institute those interventions and other interventions are going to be kind of uh, fall by the wayside. And the last thing I would say is just to reemphasize something I said earlier, which is that um, it, it's almost always ethical to run a trial of you know a, a reasonable intervention. 
And just because you really believe that it's beneficial, it doesn't make it unethical to run that trial. Um, and you know, uh, the United Kingdom has just reported um, their first human challenge studies of COVID-19 where they mm -hmm. infected volunteers with the virus. And look, you know, that happens to be an area of my expertise, but, but if it's ethical to infect volunteers with the virus, then gosh, it's definitely ethical to run a randomized control trial right. of you know, most interventions. Um, and yeah, so w one of the things that tells you is that science depends on freedom, as we talked about before, there needs to be some intellectual freedom, because we want to run as many of these as possible. And if you shut things down, um, and you make, uh, you make science just um, a kind of a cult of people all saying the same thing, well, you're going to go down some dead ends and science actually isn't going to progress as much as you might like it to. Hmm. What was the challenge trial for a vaccine? Uh, well, you know, they were originally proposed to be set up as a platform partly to develop vaccines. I see. Uh, but but it took so long to get them going uh, for various reasons that by the time they by the time they were going, we already had some vaccines. But I they see. managed to find managed to find some people who were unvaccinated and not previously infected. Although they did run them on, on previously infected people, but it did give us really useful information. Um, it showed that people could be infected with a very low dose of the virus. It showed that people were infectious by day two even though at day two, they didn't have symptoms. You know, most people's symptoms peaked at day five, but they're infectious by day two. Um, it showed that rapid antigen tests were really good at determining who was infectious and when. And just imagine if we had have had all those pieces of information right, early on, early on in mid 2020, we might've been able to reduce the total duration of isolation for each right. infected person. And when there's millions of people yeah, or tens right. of millions or hundreds of millions of people subjected to 14 days isolation, even if you can reduce that to just 10 days, that's a huge number of person days saved. Um, so even though those trials haven't yet been used to test vaccines, uh, I think we're going to learn a lot about the virus and immunity to the virus. Um, and we're also going to learn a lot that's relevant to public health interventions. Yeah, I have. Um, that's a very interesting point. And I have... Uh... I have no, unlike some, I have no prima facie objection to the idea of challenge trials. But I have one interesting thing that I thought about. I was arguing with somebody and they were saying, like, if you want to prove N95's work, um, community N95ing, you should do a challenge trial. Put an N95 or N95 and then blow the virus in their face and see who gets it. And I was like, under that condition, I'm 100% sure it's going to work. But that's not the question. The question is, when you advise people to wear it with regular compliance and meet the virus as they would meet in the world without a blow a big bunch in your face um does it work then you know is it a public health strategy and 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 so i think your point is well taken that some types of questions like you standardize when you're infecting them so you can look for when they're infectious and perhaps it will give you something about like a theoretical efficacy of a vaccine but it won't be the real world effectiveness um but it could still be helpful for some questions but this mask question this is not the way to do it well i, I would push back on that a bit okay um, so for the vaccine question, one thing challenge trials would be really good for is preventing asymptomatic infection because you can test people, you know, you know whether they've been re-exposed, so you can check whether the vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection. But for the mask thing, look, I think you could run a challenge trial of that, but but not in the way you described. So okay. there's a there's a famous study from a few decades ago called uh, the All Night Poker Game, uh, and and it was a study of. Um, how common cold viruses are transmitted between people. And so they got people, it's basically a challenge trial uh, where uh, I think one person was infected, or at least this would be the best way of running it. I you see. get people, you get people who's to known do, to be infected and you make yeah. them play versus not play. Okay, I like That's that. Right. So, so you, get, you get people, but you would have to house them for many days together. And then you introduce an infected person, right? Yeah, and you yeah. just get them to do everyday activities, wearing an N95 mask or not. 
Uh, and I think then we would at least get some kind of readout on how effective they are. Um, sorry, how efficacious they are. Um, and you could do it with other types of masks too, you know. And uh, I think I think you probably could do some pretty useful challenge trials of different types of personal protective equipment. Then, but you're right, it can't be just blowing it in their faces. Okay, so then let me put the pin in what we agree and disagree. Uh, we agree that challenge trials are useful. The disagreement I had was not about the challenge portion. It was about the inoculum. And what you're saying is you can use a more realistic inoculum. And actually, I, I'll tell you what the best thing about your trial will be. You could simulate, like, um, what is it like when all the kids in daycare sit in the same room with no ventilation for 10 hours, cloth mask versus not. And what you will find is there are going to be outbreaks in both arms, <laughs> you know, because if you introduce them. So that, like, there's, no, there's no way that flimsy mask does anything when you're all breathing the same air for 10 hours, right? So I think you're right. It will be useful, um, very useful. Um, uh, the only thought is that it won't get you the compliance issue because the people in your study, like, if they're going to wear the N95, they're not going to slack. But maybe you'll simulate that too. Okay, well put, well put. That's an interesting... All right, so I guess I was anchored too much to this person's idea of blowing it in their face, and I was like, that's such a stupid idea. Okay, I, I got anchored the wrong thing. It's like any trial. It has to be as close to reality as possible. Yeah. That's the key. It has to be as close to reality. Um, Australia, your country... You're you're now you're now uh, you're out of you are out of the restriction to talk about the restrictions in your country. Um, I was talking to some people, and this is I thought it was crazy, but this woman was dating somebody. People email me something, so this woman was dating somebody, and they live in one state. And she had a job in another state. Um, she's going to go take her job, but her partner decided not to be um, vaccinated, so he's not allowed to come. They had like a, a like you can't unvaccinated people can't cross state lines or whatever. Is that really a rule in your country? Um, yeah, I think it, it might it might still be a rule in at least some places, and it certainly was a rule <laughs> for a very long period of time. Um, and yeah, Australia, you know, it's been, it's been the best of times, but it's also I think it's been mainly the worst of times in Australia. Yeah. You know, in in twenty twenty, uh, Australia got lucky, right? Uh, we are one of the wealthiest <laughs> countries in the world per capita. Yes. We're geographically isolated yes. uh, with a low population density. And when the virus hit Australia, it was the middle of summer, as opposed to when it hit the Northern Hemisphere, when it was the middle of winter. Mm. And so early on in Australia, for all those reasons, it was very easy for us to eliminate the virus. <clears throat> and then we fell into the trap of zero COVID. Um, this idea uh, that you could, you know, we could have Australian exceptionalism and eliminate the virus forever, no matter what the cost. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the problems is that we closed the border and then each state had their own hotel quarantine system where they would let people in, but only if they stayed in, you know, what was basically a prison system, uh, but with a nicer kind of bed where you had to stay in hotel quarantine for 14 days. And over 300,000 people were subject to this, but we also abandoned our citizens overseas. You know, some citizens couldn't return home. Um, we prevented people from leaving the country and so on. But one of the kind of political problems became that because each state ran their own system, if there was a leak, if the virus was introduced in your state, then it could be blamed on the person in charge. Mm. And so there you see the link between zero COVID and authoritarianism because mm -hmm. th these people were being blamed for failure to keep the virus out. And so then they had to you know, work very hard. They thought they had to work very hard uh, to suppress the virus again. And, and um, what that resulted in was uh well the city i live in melbourne becoming the most locked down city uh in a democratic nation anywhere in the world we were, we were locked down for 
eight and a half months. And this is hard lockdown where you're only allowed to leave your house for a narrow range of reasons. Uh, you're only allowed to exercise outside for one hour a day. If the police catch you sitting in a park, uh, you can be fined. Uh, you can't go more than five kilometers from your house. Uh, you have outdoor mask mandates. Uh, you can't have visitors to your house. Uh, public assembly is banned. Um, kind of really heavy duty rules. Uh, and we were subject to those for many months and other rules in between. Um, and a lot of those rules, especially kind of everything focused on outdoors. Yeah, I achieved, wondered that. Nothing. Yeah, achieved probably nothing. We had playgrounds closed, just like you had in California. Uh, that only achieved harm. It, it didn't achieve benefit. Um, and, you know, I think in 2020, before we have vaccines, it's it's a difficult trade-off. You know, we can, we can have a discussion about what the right approach is, um, you know, I'm personally not in favor of border closures. I think citizens have a right to leave and return to their own country. I also think, you know, non-citizens, your travelers, refugees or whatever uh, should be allowed in. And, you know, all of those things were kind of shut down. But you can have a discussion about before we have vaccines, you know, what's justifiable. Um, but what's what happened is that, you know, lockdowns you know, started out as tragedy and they ended up as farce. Uh, you know, uh, by 2021, by early 2021, uh, we had widely available vaccines, but there are a couple of problems. One is that because the government had been telling people, you can prevent COVID in other ways, we right. can keep COVID out by closing our borders. They had bread hesitancy. That's right. People weren't motivated to get vaccinated. Same with they're Hong like, Kong. Oh. That's why the Hong Kong people, yeah, right. Exactly. They're like, they're like, oh, we'll wait and see. Maybe some of these vaccines are too dangerous. I want to wait for a better vaccine. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of waiting because people faced no risk of COVID or minimal risk of COVID really. Um, and the second reason is that there became this bizarre consensus that we had to vaccinate everyone, including young people, before we lifted the restrictions. And, and I think that was a huge mistake, you know, ethically speaking. What really matters uh, once you get vaccines is that the people at high risk, which is mostly older adults and people with severe comorbidities, that those people get vaccinated. Once those people are vaccinated, which had largely, largely happened by sort of early to mid 2021 in Australia, then in, from my point of view, there's no justification for further restrictions. Um, and yet they went on and they went on uh, in a way that was very interesting because in Australia, you know, we have two large cities, uh, Melbourne, population about 5 million, capital of Victoria, Sydney, um, uh, population, I think closer to 8 million, uh, um, capital of New South Wales. And at the same time, we had the same virus, the Delta variant, um, and uh, Victoria, Melbourne, decided to do hard, fast lockdown. And Sydney decided to do a kind of softer approach, not as much uh, um, later interventions and so on. And many pro-lockdown campaigners you know, crowed at the time that this was a natural experiment and we were going to show that hard and fast lockdown uh, was the best way to go. And actually, when you look at what happened, there was very little difference between uh, Melbourne and Sydney in terms of what happened. Um, and moreover, by the time that Melbourne was put into hard lockdown in mid-2021, people were exhausted. You know, people were demoralised. Uh, you know, mental health was in massive decline. Um, people just can't live hypervigilant lives complying with these really stringent rules forever. And of course, and what do they call that? Um, compliance fatigue you know people just yeah. people just stop people stop following the rules and of course they did and that's why um every pandemic plan ever written said that you know mass yeah. non-pharmaceutical interventions should be used only at the peak of an epidemic and for the shortest time possible and then they should be relaxed because 
you know, we have to acknowledge that these lockdowns caused enormous public health harm and just the harm of, as I pointed out recently, 5 million people being subject to a hard lockdown for nine months. Well, that's an enormous loss of quality of life for a huge number of people. Oh my goodness. That is, you know, such an excellent point. But I think related to the kids that if they had vaccinated the older people and removed the lockdown, it would have been a message that all you young people who locked down, we, you did it for them. It was an altruistic act and you didn't do it for you because you still haven't been vaccinated. You're going to get out there, get out there, go to the bars. Um, and that's politically tough. Just like closing the school, it's only justified if we did it for them to get this vaccine, which we got to approve one way or the other. By the way, they're poised to approve 25 micrograms of Moderna times two, 50 micrograms in under four, 50 micrograms, like 50 micrograms. Oh, oh my God, what are you thinking? Including a four-year-old who just had Omicron. And by the way, I was reading one of these studies about um, vaccine-induced myocarditis, and they exclude people who had a COVID diagnosis within 30 days of getting vaccinated. Oh yeah, I was like, what, I wonder what happened to their adverse events profile. We do have data from uh, the VA. Here's the last thing I want to ask you about, money. <clears throat> I was looking through, I was looking around, and I saw somebody who is a big advocate for testing. Test early, test often, test asymptomatic, test, 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 test. They're always tweeting test, 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 and writing papers, test, test. The solution is more testing. And this person was a faculty member at a university. And then one day I go look at the profile, and this person is the chief scientific officer of a testing company. <laughs> And I was like, this, I was like, I knew it was coming. Now they're the, the chief scientific officer of a testing company. There's another person who talks about schools can only open safely if you use our brand of testing. I'm pleased to announce that my modeling study is co-authored with the company that makes the test. Okay, great. And now Pfizer, they're going to make a hundred billion this year. They got the U.S. has a new bill. Five billion is a. I mean, I I just write my tax check to Albert Borla. I say, dear Albert Borla, here's my taxes. Thank you very much for your products. No need to give me evidence. Uh, just accept, buy them all in advance. Uh, the evidence, obviously, how we do things. Um, money. You know, throughout this pandemic, I saw people were happy to throw the moniker that, you know, that money was the, the root of all evil. I remember John Yonides, he, um, he didn't know about $5,000 that the former JetBlue CEO, apparently he wasn't even the current CEO, he was the former CEO of JetBlue, and he gave $5,000 to Stanford to a pooled fund that paid for research. John didn't know about it, but that's 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 what led to all that stuff. <laughs> like, okay, obviously that's a conflict. Uh, uh, that's what they said. They made a big deal out of it. But now we're talking about companies making hundreds of billions of dollars. A vaccine program that has to give you a yearly or bi-yearly shot to keep making that money. Like they need that to be the case. And they had a meeting today where they're poised to approve these vaccines in perpetuity without clinical randomized control trial data, but with like immunobridging data or manufacturing data, like the flu vaccine, a very low regulatory bar. They need that market share of kids. We also have the testing bonanza. And then I think the worst profiteers of the pandemic, the same tech companies that are asked to regulate speech profit from you being in your house. Look at how we're doing this on the Zoom. You know, and all my services are bought through Amazon and Netflix, and I have to watch them because I'm trapped in my house. Like, they want me not to live life. That, that Their whole goal is to live life through their lousy product that robs you of the experience. Um, they're getting rich. So I wonder if you might talk about, I don't know, your thoughts on conflict of interest in this pandemic. And in a future crisis, I mean, how will we manage this problem of money? Money is driving a lot of these policies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you know, uh, 
financial interests are an enormous problem, even in the world of evidence-based medicine. You know, um, the, the editors are getting paid, the authors of the studies are getting paid, and that distorts science in huge ways, not to mention that companies don't want to publish negative data. Right. Uh, you know, com companies want to pu publish flimsy trials with kind of secondary endpoints that show their product works as soon as possible and they want to get it, um, they want to get it out there. And I think a lot of people don't realize how deep that corruption runs. Um, and as you point out, it's not just about kind of vaccine or drug companies. Uh, it's also about um, uh, testing companies. Uh, you know, they're corrupting science and corrupting policy. Um, even mask companies, you know, when, when you look at, as you know, one of the only trials that had been done of cloth mask versus surgical mask um, had been done, was sponsored by 3M, who manufacture the surgical masks, right? <laughs> so it's like, of course, of course, the, the people doing that trial who are getting paid by the kind of surgical mask company, they're going to be influenced in some way. Now, it might still be the case that one type of mask is better than the other type of mask, but the point is that there's influence at play for right. a whole right. range of interventions. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the big lessons from the 2009 influenza pandemic was the Tamiflu debacle, right? So uh, the manufacturer of this uh, really weak antiviral um, uh, hid, hid evidence that it didn't really do very much, right. um, uh, produced kind of flimsy evidence that it did something and then claimed that it did something else. Right. And then government spent billions of dollars stockpiling this medicine that did almost nothing. And so many times in this pandemic, COVID pandemic, I've thought, oh, it's a repeat of Tamiflu, wow. and now we're now now we're now we're really seeing that, right? Because governments are stockpiling, paying in advance for fourth and fifth doses that probably aren't doing very much for most people. Um, antivirals, everyone's so happy that we've got these antivirals. Hardly anyone talks about the fact that they were tested in unvaccinated. That's people. what I keep. I know. Where's the Paxlovid vaccinated study? There's no. Uh, there's no. They're not releasing the results. They just changed it on clinicaltrials.gov, pushing it yeah, into the future. Yeah. That's right. And so so whatever benefit it showed in unvaccinated people, well, we can divide that by, yes. I don't know, you know, five or 10 or more. Uh, and that's going to be there's going to be a tiny benefit in vaccinated people. And yet, no, no, no. Is, and, and that's best case scenario. Yeah, exactly. Best case scenario. It might be worse. Many of these interventions might be a net harm. You know, at, at some point, an additional vaccine dose is a net harm. Depends on who you are, depends on the vaccine and so on. At some point, an antiviral is going to be a net harm for you, just like Many times when people take antibiotics, they don't really need antibiotics. So by definition, it's a net harm intervention. Um, and we hardly, we hardly ever talk about that. But a big reason why it happens is money. And I don't necessarily think there's a conspiracy going on. It's just business. Yeah. You know, yes, the companies have got to make money. And one of the ways they make money, I mean, yeah, the, the manufacturers of remdesivir spent millions of dollars lobbying the White House directly. And I don't know what Pfizer has spent on lobbying and advertising and so on, but it must be huge. Um, so, yeah, money plays there. A, ma a major role but also as you mentioned there's the bigger issue of wealth transfer that if you shut down society what happens is uh rich people who own shares and property and so on get wealthier poorer people lose their jobs and get poorer suffer more domestic violence and so on um and uh yeah internet companies <laughs> suddenly make an enormous amount of profit um but is that is that good for society i mean that's a much bigger political question I think that uh, you're absolutely right, and that this the lockdowns, I mean, this is a point that Jay Bhattacharya has made, and I think he's correct, that it has perpetuated the wealth inequality. It's made it worse. And when you perpetuate a wealth inequality, make that, that's already a problem, make it worse, 
and then take away education, but from poorer, disadvantaged kids, create a vaccine mandate in schools that will again hit disadvantaged minority kids, um, give all this money to pharmaceutical companies for the next the umpteenth vaccine. Um, what 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 do, what do you think the net effect of all this will be on and then and get, and give massive corporations the power to like silence and dissent and quelch speech etc what what is going to be the net effect of all these things on the the democracy itself and political volatility i mean i think it's going to be uh, potentially cataclysmic um and that's my real worry about all these things um anything that we didn't talk about that you want to hit i think we talked about observational studies fourth dose the paper on kids vaccines cloth masking, New York City, authoritarian public health, which I think is a fiasco. Um, have, are they shooting the deer in China? They must, I, I think they are killing animals. They probably are killing, at least it's killing somebody, I think, I don't know. Um, censoring misinformation, science in times of crisis, Australia. Um, <clears throat> oh, the last thing I wanna talk about. Uh, accountability, vengeance, credit, okay. I think I keep hearing calls for accountability, and I think we have to be really careful. We need accountability. We don't need vengeance, and we can't have vengeance, even for people who did horrible things and screwed things up. Accountability. Here's what accountability means to me. People who are in positions of power or real positions of influence, by that I mean if you directed a federal agency that was supposed to running randomized controlled trials and you didn't fund any randomized trials of NPIs, I think you got to be fired. Sorry, NIAID director's got to be fired. NIH director's got to be fired. If you worked at FDA and you led to the resignation of the two principled people who um, put up a, a, a bulwark against boosters, I think that you should be fired because you pushed them out. People in the administration should be um, pushed out of the administration and no longer voted in um, if, they can, if they did these things. People who are architects of lockdown, who distorted information publicly, I think should be pulled from those positions. That's one. People who worked in the news media, who covered it wrongly as bad as, you know, weapons of mass destruction, I think that they should be demoted from the public health perch to maybe they can cover the traffic beat or something like that, you know? They need to be pushed out of their position. Um, the New York Times reporter who thought, who, you know, cried wolf about, uh, about schools, I think should be demoted to other places. Um, people who uh, were leaders of universities that didn't do a good job of upholding academic freedom, et cetera, you know, they need to be pushed out too. Um, the average person on Twitter, even the people I dislike a lot because they say really dumb things. Um, I remember to put the toilet seat down when I flush. Uh, you know, when the people say stupid things, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think they need to lose a position that doesn't even exist, which is the right to just say whatever you want. Um, so I'm more willing to give them some grace. I think some people who I did used to respect, they went crazy about zero COVID. I disagree with them. But again, it was on, you know, I, 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 they're allowed to talk. So I don't have anything. Um, I think we have to be careful not to seek vengeance. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is credit where credit is due. There were a lot of people who I think were unfairly treated who um, were really courageous and right. And they signed things when it brought them great difficulty. Um, uh, they published papers in New England Journal about schools and kids when it came at great professional cost. There were people who were right on school closures, right about myocarditis, right about boosters, right about vaccine mandates, right about like not, by, by not having vaccine mandates, right on these issues. Um, those people should be elevated. We should give them some credit where credit is due. Um, we should have listened to them and we should give them some praise in the years to come. Um, but I wonder what are your thoughts on how do we, when we heal, um, you know, how do we balance accountability, credit, 
I'm, I worry that some people want real vengeance. I said, easy, Tiger. Vengeance. And then, and then the last thing I say is letting people forget. Most people, you have to let them forget that they were wrong because they didn't say much. They, and their brains will rewrite what they believed. Let them forget. It's okay. People always forget when they were wrong. They don't, you know, just let them. That's the way they cope. Um, you, you know, let the people forget. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that uh, I don't, I don't want to see vengeance or personal attacks on people who are wrong. I also don't want to see people being forced to recant their beliefs, you know, because that's effectively what we, we yeah. what we saw among scientists who say, "Oh no, I know I used to say this, but now the science has changed, and I believe." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a really bad look, and I don't want to see people being forced to do that either. Um, yeah, I tend to agree that there should be some kind of consequence, and yeah, what one kind of consequence is that the people who were right. Uh, and the people who had the courage to stand up for what was right, yeah, should be elevated and, and promoted. Um, and part of the reason for that, uh, you know, uh, is um, just because we need we need those people um, in future who'll be able to, you know, see through the noise, uh, uh, you know, evaluate things appropriately, both scientifically and ethically, uh, and come out with recommendations. And if we could get more of those people uh, in charge. Uh, then, you know, hopefully things might be better next time. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a real, there's a real problem. And, and, and there's a problem of how do we handle that as a society? And I agree. Um, I think we just have, like, I think I've said previously, we have to, we have to welcome people back to a good, yeah. to a discussion, but acknowledge that the terms of the discussion, uh, you know, have changed because we now have very clear evidence uh, that some of the things that people said just weren't true you know weren't uh, helpful were on balance harmful um and that you know major values of our society have been have been put at risk but we can pick up the pieces together i hope i hope zebi amrozik thank you so much for doing this it's been a pleasure as always i hope people enjoyed this discussion thanks and i likewise